0: Chapter 12, verse 1, the revelation of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. Yahweh, he who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the human spirit within a person, says, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup that brings dizziness to all the surrounding nations. Indeed, Judah will also be inclined when Jerusalem is besieged. Moreover, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy burden for all the nations and all who try to carry It will be seriously injured. Yet all the peoples of the earth will be assembled against it. And that day, says Yahweh, I will strike every horse with confusion, its rider with madness. I will pay close attention to the house of Judah, but will strike all the horses of the nations with the blindness. Then the leaders of Judah will say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are a means of strength to us through their God. And Yahweh rules over all, On that day will make the leaders of Judah like an ignition or an igniter among sticks or a fire among sticks and a burning torch among the sheaves. And they will burn up and all the surrounding nations right and left. And then the people of Jerusalem will settle once more in their place, the city of Jerusalem. And Yahweh also will deliver their homes of Judah first, so that the splendor of the kingship of David and of the people of Jerusalem may not exceed that of Judah. On that day, Yahweh himself will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the weakest among them will be like mighty like mighty David, and the dynasty of David will be like God, and like the angel of Yahweh before them. So on that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So he looks forward to the day, and he says, I'm going to bring a drunkenness of judgment on you. I'm going to make you dizzy with alcohol as I judge you, basically. I will throw you in confusion. Um, Remember, alcohol is often used to portray joy and the blessings of God, abundance. But it's also going to be used to um, portray um, the wrath of God, making you drunk with his judgment in a metaphorical way. He says he's going to use Israel as a fire. Now, fire, remember, is a metaphorical judgment. So it's not like he's going to turn Israel into this fiery torch and send them among them. It's so the idea is he's going to use Israel to judge the nations, to defeat the nations, to conquer them, to subdue them. And he's going to make Israel invincible in this judgment against them. And then he will secure Jerusalem, Judah, and make them a mighty warrior among all the nations and a mighty kingdom among all the nations. So he's looking forward to a distant future. And basically this is the idea of the new Jerusalem that the prophets have been developing for a while. Verse 10, I will pour out my kingship of David in the population of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look at to me the one that they have pierced. They will lament for him as one laments for only a son and there will be a bitter cry for him in the bitter cry of the firstborn. On that day, the lamentation in Jerusalem will be as great as the lamentation of Hadad Ramon and the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn clan by clan, the clan of the royal household of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the clan of the family of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the clan of the sons of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the clan of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the clans that remain, each separately with their wives. He says he will make them repent, he will make them lament. For they have pierced him. Now, don't look at the—that's not the cross. This isn't looking for the cross or any that kind of stuff. Or, Jesus. what it literally means is they've pierced him when they rejected him as God, when they rejected him as a um, as their shepherd, and now they're going to repent and they're going to be mourning the fact that they had re- rejected him. Now, notice the tribes that he specifically mentions, as he mentions Judah, because they were the leaders of Israel. And then he mentions Levi because they were also the priestly leaders. So Judah was the kingly leaders and the Levites were the priestly leaders. But he also mentions the Simeonites because Simeonites were the ones who had sinned against God by bringing the temple prostitutes into the tabernacle while they were wandering in the wilderness. And Simeon and Levi both had rejected God by using the Abrahamic covenant as a way to kill all the Shechemites way back in Genesis. And then he says, in all the other tribes. So these are considered kind of the worst tribes because Judah should have known better as leaders, and Levi should have known better as the priests, and then Simeon represent absolute rebellion of Israel. And so these are the ones who are going to mourn. And if they mourn, then all the tribes will definitely mourn as a result of that. He's going to attack the foolish prophet. He's going to deal with him. In that day, chapter 13, verse 1, in that day there will be a fountain open for the dynasty of David and the people of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And also in that day, says Yahweh, who rules over all, I will remove the names of the idols from the land, and they will never again be remembered. Moreover, I will remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And then if anyone prophesies in spite of this, his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, You cannot live, for you lie in the name of Yahweh. And his father and mother to whom he was born or run to him, run him through with a sword when he prophesies. God says, that day will come when I will cleanse Israel of all their impurity, all their sin, all their rebellion, all their sin against God. And he says he will remove all their idols, he will remove their impurity, he will remove the false prophets from the land and the unclean spirits that speak wrongly. And then he says, anyone who speaks against God and what he has promised will be killed by their family. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 13, God had said you must not allow a false prophet to live among you. If anyone falsely prophesies in the name of Yahweh, then you are to kill them even if they're your own family member, son, father, brother, whatever. Now remember, God did not command them to kill false prophets around the world. He meant to kill the false prophets in Israel. And if you swore that you were going to be a part of the covenant, and you sacrificed an animal and sealed your life and blood in the covenant, that you would obey the Ten Commandments, and then you go out and not only do you disobey the Ten Commandments, but you actually bring false prophets in, or you are a false prophet, that's a huge violation of the covenant. So this isn't just killing people who are false prophets. This is killing people who have sworn allegiance to Yahweh in the covenant, and now they're violating the covenant intentionally and rebelling against God and trying to mislead his people. Those people cannot be allowed to live. Israel never really did that. They didn't faithfully do that in any kind of way. They allowed the false prophets to live among them, and they listened to them. And God says a day will come when they will actually eliminate false prophets. Not only will they not have sin among them, they will be willing to do the hard thing of eliminating false prophets, even if it's their own family member. Chapter 13, verse 4. Therefore, in that day, each prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and will no longer wear the hairy garment of a prophet to deceive the people. Instead, he will say, I am no prophet. Indeed, I am a farmer. For a man has made me his indentured servant since my youth. Then someone will ask him, What are these wounds on your chest? And he will answer, Some that I received in the house of my friends. So in that day, Israel will be so faithful to not allow any false prophet to live among them that all the false prophets will be ashamed to admit that they are one and they'll say they're a farmer or something else and they'll go into hiding. The idea is that the faithfulness of Israel will be so strong that the wicked will not have the courage to thrive. And that's a very powerful statement because right now the wickedness in most cultures and most countries and time periods is so strong that it's the righteous who are afraid to be out in public and to do the right thing because they're afraid they're going to be destroyed by the wicked. And what God is saying is going to be completely reversed. It's going to be completely reversed in that day. Verse 7, Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is the associate, says Yahweh who rules over all. Strike the shepherd that the flock may scatter. I will turn my hand against the insignificant ones, and it will happen all all in the land, says Yahweh. So this is him destroying the the foolish prophet. Or sorry, this is him destroying the foolish shepherd. That two-thirds of the people in it will be cut off and die, but one-third will be left in it. And then I will bring the remaining third into the fire. And I will refine them like silver is refined. And will test them like gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer. And I will say these are my people and they will say Yahweh is my God. So he says, I'm going to bring a fire among them. And this fire is going to consume and judge the wicked and destroy them. But of the other people who are righteous, it will refine them. And this is important to understand that even the the Second Testament says this, everyone goes through the fire on Judgment Day. The Bible makes it very clear, it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or a non-believer, everyone goes through the fire of Judgment on Judgment Day. No one is saved from the fire. But what the fire does to you has everything to do with your faith and righteousness. So if you're not righteous, you've rejected Jesus Christ as your Savior, the fire consumes you. Not literal fire consumes you, but you are judged and condemned, and and you're prosecuted. But if you're righteous, then it will refine you. It will test you. It will strengthen you. It will grow you. And it will get rid of the evil or the sin that is in you. And so this is what he's prophesying is that will happen on that day. Everyone goes to the fire. Jesus quoted... The shepherd being killed and all of everybody scattering around him, and in Matthew chapter twenty six verse thirty one and in Mark fourteen twenty seven, when his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane that night were fleeing him after Jesus had betrayed him, and the Sanhedrin was taking him into trial, they all begin to scatter, and Jesus quote this passage. Now Jesus is not saying I'm the foolish shepherd who's going to be killed and now everybody is scattering everywhere. What he's saying is just like back then, where God says when the pro- the false shepherds were killed, and everybody scattered, and when Yahweh abandoned them and everyone scattered them, and when the foolish prophets killed everyone scattered, God is Jesus is basically saying when people don't have a leader, they scatter, they basically scatter. This is the result of it, in that sense. So that's what he's kind of alluding there is that on that day, chapter fourteen, verse one. On that day Yahweh is about to come when your possessions will be divided as plunder in the midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem and will wage war on the city and will be taken as houses and plunder and the women raped. Then half of the city will go into exile, but the remainder of the people will not be taken away. Then Yahweh will go to battle and fight against the nations just as he fought battles in the ancient days. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which lies to the east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, will split in half from east to west, leaving a great valley. Half the mountain will move northward and the other half southward. And then you will escape through my mountain valley, for the mountains will extend to Azal. Indeed, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. And then Yahweh my God will come with all of his holy ones, who are the angels, with him, And on that day, he will be, there will be no light, and the sources of light in heavens will congeal. And it will happen to one in one day, a day known as Yahweh. Not in the day of the night, but in the evening there will be light. And moreover on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And it will happen both in the summer and in the winter. So basically he predicts this day that he's going to come down the Mount of Olives and the mountain is going to split. And the idea is, in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied the coming announcer, the coming, the one who announces the way of God. And this is John the baptizer. And he said, may all the mountains be brought low and may all the valleys be brought high and may a highway be made through the wilderness to come to Yahweh. And the idea is that every single obstacle that is in the way of you coming to God and receiving the kingdom of God, may it be eliminated, may it be removed, and you have this straight, smooth highway directly to God. And so that's what he's predicting. On this day, you'll come down to Mount of Olives, and the mountain that's in their way of coming to God, it will be split. Now, this is important because if you look at Israel, you enter back into Israel from the east. And you move westward. And we talked about this idea that Israel is like the Garden of Eden, and the Jordan River is like the Eastern Gate. And moving eastward is exile away from God, judgment. That's going into Babylon. And moving westward is going towards God. When you come towards God, you're going to hit the Jordan River, and there's this huge Rift Valley. And then once you go up the Rift Valley, there's the Mount of Olives. And then he had to go over the Mount of Olives, and then he had to go down into another valley, the Kidron Valley, and then he had to go up another mountain to Mount Moriah where the temple is. These are obstacles. But on that day, when God comes and lands on the Mount of Olives, he's going to hit it so hard, so to speak, that the whole thing is going to split. So that when you come from the east, moving westward towards God, you don't have to go up and down these mountains. You will just have a straight path right to God, and it will be easy to get to him. And then it says that they won't need light because God himself will be their light as he dwells with them. And it will happen on this day that there will be no more evening. Now remember in the ancient world, darkness is a science symbol of evil and wickedness because in a, when you don't have street lights everywhere and you don't have electricity and you don't have like emergency panic buttons on the campus, is kind of an idea. And there are no police or military to respond to your panicking and that kind of stuff. It is absolutely dark at night, and nothing good happens in the dark. I remember when people say like nothing good happens after 11 o'clock or after midnight, and like kids are always like, whatever. Like if you've ever talked to cops who work the night shift, that is so true. Or if you talk to like people in the hospitals who work the night shift, that is so true. And if that's true today with electricity and cell phones and CTV cameras and all that kind of stuff, imagine the ancient world in absolute darkness and nobody coming to help you in any kind of way. And so when God says there will be no more night or evening, the idea is there's no more evil. There's no more wickedness, and there's no place for evil people to hide and thrive and do bad things. And then the living waters will come out of the temple of God, and they will flow to the Dead Sea, and they'll flow to the Mediterranean Sea, and turn things into the Garden of Eden. That's what we saw at the end of Ezekiel. Ezekiel spent several chapters unpacking that, but now he just kind of summarizes it here. So he is obviously speaking to the second coming of Jesus Christ, where the new Jerusalem will be fully established. So Yahweh will then be king over all the earth in that day, and Yahweh will be seen as one with a single name. And all the land will change and become like the Arab, from Geba to to Ramana, south of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be raised up and will stay in its own place, from Benjamin's gate to the site of the first gate, and on the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanau to the royal winepress. And the people will settle there and will no longer be a threat of divine extermination. And Jerusalem will dwell in security. So he will then extend the borders of Israel far, or Jerusalem specifically, which is the holy temple of God. He will extend it way, way, way past the borders of Jerusalem into all the land of Israel. But this, verse 12, will be the nature of the plague with which Yahweh will strike all the nations that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will decay while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot away in the sockets, and their tongues will dissolve in their mouth. And on that day there will be great confusion from Yahweh among them, and they will seize each other and attack one another violently. Moreover, Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered up gold, silver, and clothing in the great abundance. And this is the kind of plague that will devastate horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and all the other animals in those camps. So God will basically bring an end to all the evil nations that surround Jerusalem. And he describes it in a very horrific kind of a picture. But the idea is that they will lose their faculty to speak against God. They will lose their, their ability to see. Um, they will be, lose their ability to function. Because they have depended upon themselves and they've ignored the word of God, and now they're going to reap what they have sown. And this is going to be done through a plague that will wipe them out. Verse 16 Then all who survive from all the nations that came to attack Jerusalem will go up uh, annually to worship the king and Yahweh who rules over all and to observe the feast of the tabernacles. But if any of the nations anywhere on earth refuse to go up to Jerusalem, To worship the king, Yahweh will rule over all. They will get no rain. And if the Egyptians do not, if the Egyptians will not do so, they will get no rain. Instead, there will be a kind of plague which Yahweh inflicts on any nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. When God establishes his new Jerusalem, it will be on the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, remember, is that last festival. There were seven festivals of Yahweh. The first four festivals, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Feast of Weeks, foreshadowed the first coming of Jesus Christ. So those were fulfilled in the death of Christ, Passover, and the resurrection of Christ, First Fruits, and then the Holy Spirit coming down on them, Pentecost slash Feast of Weeks. There were three other festivals that foreshadowed the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Feast of Trumpets, where the nation begged Yahweh to come and dwell with them permanently, physically on earth. The Day of Atonement, where they atoned for their sins so that God could dwell with them. And the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would live in temporary tents for a week, reminding them of having no place with God and not having the promised land. And on the eighth day, they would go back into the real homes, looking for the day that the kingdom of God would come on earth. And so the Feast of Tabernacles basically looked for the day well, basically, at the Feast of Trumpets, where it basically would probably be Christ's second coming, the Day of Atonement is Christ eliminating all evil on earth, and then the Feast of Tabernacles is the kingdom of God can come to earth now because there's no evil. And so he's just described the kingdom of God coming down to earth and that there's no evil, and says now we will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which looks forward to the kingdom of God coming on earth. This is why when John, well, sorry, when um, when Moses and Elijah appeared next to Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. It just happened to be Feast of Tabernacles, and Peter's like, Ooh, the kingdom of God is coming now. Because he he put it all together. So this is what he's saying. There will be a day where you will actually celebrate this legitimately because the kingdom of God is here. And that day, and those who refuse to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles will be judged. So the Egyptians specifically now, why the Egyptians? Because the Egyptians were the symbol of sin and death, slavery to sin and death in the ancient world because of the Exodus. So they will be punished and dealt with. Those who refuse to enter the kingdom of God, they will be punished. Verse 20, On that day the bells of the horses will bear the inscription, Holy to Yahweh, and the cooking pots in Yahweh's temple will be as holy as the bulls in front of the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will become holy in the sight of Yahweh who rules over all. So all who offer sacrifices may come and use some of them to boil their sacrifices in them. And on that day there will be no longer be a Canaanite in the house of Yahweh who rules over all. This is interesting because the only person who was allowed to have holy unto Yahweh inscribed on them was the high priest. As he went into the holy of holies to atone for sin. And the only thing that was considered holy and sacred were the items in the tabernacle or the temple that were used for the atonement of sin. That's the only thing. But God is saying a day will come where even the bells on the cows are going to have holy unto Yahweh inscribed upon them. And even the cooking pot that you use to cook meat will be holy and sacred, just like the bull that collects the blood that's thrown on the altar for the atonement of sin. And so, what this is painting a picture of is everything will be holy because there will be no sin. And everything, now remember, holy means absolutely unique and unlike anything in creation, which means only Yahweh can be holy. But when Yahweh says, be holy because I'm holy, and then it says that knife and that bowl and the tabernacle are holy, what it means is when you dedicate yourself or give yourself or give the bowl or the knife to Yahweh, then Yahweh will use it in a unique way unlike anything else, is used. A knife is just used for killing animals, cutting up food. But when a knife becomes holy, it's used to atone for sins, which is unique and unlike anything that any knife is being used for in the world. And so the same thing. You use your life in order to make yourself famous, powerful, loved, accepted, and control, or whatever. But when you become holy, then you use your life in order to give other people life. And you use it to serve God. And he begins to use you in a unique way, in a way that nobody else uses their life. Everybody else out there in the world is just trying to make themselves comfortable or powerful or secure, secure or safe, or sorry, um, or accepted. But you are holy, and you're going to be used by God in a holy way. And you're going to be used to benefit other people and benefit the kingdom of God. And he's going to use you in a unique way in a way that you could have never imagined your life could be used with blessings you could never imagine. And so he says when that day comes that he returns, that will be true of everything on earth. Everything on earth. It will all be used by God in order to build the kingdom of God. And that day there will be no more Canaanites. Now the idea is not that ethnically speaking no Canaanites will be there because we know that's not true. Rahab was a Canaanite, and we know that the woman who came to Jesus and got healing was a Canaanite, and there are other incidences of this as well, but the idea is that Canaanite is metaphorical of those who have practiced horribly wicked sins against God, and they're so hard-hearted that they now need to die as an entire nation, and those people won't be in there anymore. And so Zechariah ends with this picture of the New Jerusalem, just like many, many other pre-exilic prophets continually ended with this image of the New Jerusalem. Zechariah adds to that picture and that imagery as he ends there. This continual picture of this New Jerusalem with no evil, no sin, and all blessings of God are just tremendously poured out on everybody, regardless of nation, or um, whether you're lame or not, and the sense that like sick people aren't accepted in the ancient world, or whether you're male or female, rich or poor, and that kind of stuff. The fact that this imagery keeps popping up over and over and over again through the prophets shows that when you get to Revelation, and that final chapter in Revelation looks forward to the idea that no sin or evil will be on the planet, and God will actually live among us, That's not a new idea in Revelation. And the fact that that is so repeated over and over and over again shows you that you can take this literally. Now, some of the language will be metaphorical, obviously. There will be no more Canaanites and that kind of stuff. But the idea of no sin and the idea of perfect rule of God on earth is obviously literal because this idea keeps getting repeated over and over and over again. And this is why... No one can really truly deny the second coming of Christ if they're truly a Christian. So that is the book of Zechariah.